Well, hello and welcome to another episode of uh, GUcast. Uh, this is Declan Murphy, a urologist at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Uh, I'm joined as ever by my co-host, uh, Dr. Renu Epen, urologist here at Peter Mac. Uh, hello, Renu. Hi, Declan. Good to be back. Good to be back. And we're going into bladder cancer again. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's an exciting it, time for bladder cancer right is. now. It is. It doesn't get a lot of love, does it? But here we are three times in the, the last yeah. 10 days. We're having a, a almost entire podcast um, uh, about bladder cancer. And um, I mean, there's all sorts of good reasons to do that, but yeah. it's certainly been in the limelight uh, in the past couple of weeks, hasn't it? Yeah. So, uh, yes, we're going to focus on bladder cancer again, and uh, we've got uh, two very special guests, uh, Renu, that you're going to introduce to us to have a really good focus on bladder cancer and some very important uh, pivotal data that we've uh, just seen. That's right, Declan. It's uh, it's very exciting to introduce our guest today. Uh, firstly, joining us in the studio is uh, Associate Professor Andrew Weikart, who's a medical oncologist at the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Centre. He has a special interest in bladder cancer and is currently running the pembrolizumab and chemoradiation phase one trial at several centres in Australia uh, through ANZA. Uh, he's also a keen cyclist and he's in his cycling gear today as he cycled into our studio. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me, team. Uh, long time listener, first time appearance, and I'm delighted to be here to talk about this exciting time and data in bladder cancer. Fantastic. Hey, Renu, it is good it's a podcast. You don't yeah. see stuff, don't you? Because I sometimes come in here in my That's cycling right. gear and I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to be put up against Andrew Weikart. He's much fitter. He's a much more serious cyclist than I am. Um, and it also gives me great pleasure to introduce a good friend and colleague of mine, Associate Professor Petros Grievous, uh, who's joining us through Zoom today from the US. Uh, Petros is a clinical director of the GU Cancers Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, he's an associate professor in the Clinical Research Division at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre. He has special expertise in treating GU cancers, especially bladder cancer, and his clinical research has really helped to lead to FDA approval of, of, many, of new drugs in bladder cancer. And we're going to discuss uh, one of uh, his landmark uh, clinical trials that he's involved in, the Javelin 100 trial that was recently presented at the virtual ASCO plenary session. Um, welcome, Petros. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Renu, for the kind invitation, and Declan as well. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you virtually and hopefully in person in the near future. Fantastic, Petros. How are you doing there in these uh, in these in this during this pandemic uh, during COVID nineteen? How are things uh, going there? Well, you know, this is definitely a very unique time uh, in our lifetime. Probably uh, I, the situation here in Seattle. Uh, right now is better in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, despite being the first uh, area to be hit by the virus back in February, uh, we were able to flatten the curve and implement early measures of social distancing, uh, using screening uh, in the cancer center, using masks. And um, I think the, the peak of the surge was lower than expected. And right now the numbers of COVID-19 in our hospitals are lower than before. Uh, so we're very careful, very cautious, and now we're kind of back to the um, what we call the attempt, the pathway of the new normal. But the new normal is definitely not the same with the previous conditions. But we we stay, uh, you know, um, uh, close to our patients, and and we try to implement new practices and uh, use a lot of telemedicine and virtual meetings, um, like the one we do today. Yeah, absolutely. And Petros, your hometown is Athens in Greece, uh, where we, we were just talking offline. It, w it was where we last caught up, uh, it seems like, many, many years ago, really, but it was just October last year. Um, and I had the pleasure of meeting your wonderful family, including your father, who is a, a professor of history 
uh, over there and, he, and both you and him gave us a wonderful guided tour of the Acropolis. Uh, how are your family doing? Are they all well? Uh, thank you so much, Renu, for your kind comments. I, I remembered vividly this beautiful time we had in October 2019 during the SIU meeting in Athens, Greece. Yeah. And um, family and myself were really, really honoured to have the chance to uh, give uh, uh, the tour to Acropolis and uh, uh, show you around uh, you and other great friends and colleagues uh, from different parts of the world. So uh, for very, very great memories and hopefully we can repeat them in the future. The, the family is doing well in Greece. Uh, overall, Greece, I would say, it has done very well during this pandemic. Uh, people com uh, complied and they stayed home and they, they, they managed to contain the pandemic uh, well so far. So Greece is now open uh, gradually again to the new normal and uh, tourists uh, are going there. So we're watching closely to see what happens. But um, so far, the situation has been, uh, of course, relatively speaking, um, you know, under uh, some control. Uh, and we hope that um, uh, we have as less cases as possible, like everywhere else. Let's hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was actually my first trip to Athens, and, and I, I uh, had my wallet stolen from my handbag on my way <laughs> to the airport. And even that didn't manage to taint the wonderful experience that it was. So hopefully we'll, we'll, we can repeat it in the future. Um, Andrew, I might hand over to you. Uh, as we were saying before, it's an exciting time in bladder cancer right now, isn't it? Yeah, it is really exciting because... In the last three to four years, we've had some very important data that have changed how we've um, treated our patients with metastatic bladder cancer. And we've been fortunate in Australia to, like many places in the world, to have approval of pembrolizumab in the second line um, after progression on first-line chemotherapy um, to treat patients with metastatic bladder cancer. So a treatment paradigm currently... Um, in Australia and many parts of the world would be treatment of a patient with first-line chemotherapy, um, observation, um, monitoring and surveillance scans, and then upon progression, pembrolizumab um, with immune therapy. And that certainly led to some fantastic outcomes for our patients. But in the last uh, week or so with the presentation of data at ASCO, uh, we've seen a potential change in how we might manage our patients with the Javelin 100 data. So, Petros, um, perhaps with that context, can you describe your involvement with Javelin 100 and the outcomes from the trial and how it might change how we treat our patients? Sure. Uh, thanks, Andrew, and, and thanks again, Declan and, and, and um, Renu, for, for these great discussions you, you initiate. So uh, going back in time here, about five or six years ago, we had an era before immunotherapy was approved for metastatic urothelial cancer. And at that time, we we're doing trials that you mentioned, Andrew, in the platinum refractory disease, like the Invigor 210. That was the first one to, to um, report. And uh, we had trials in the frontline setting, like in Node 52, uh, Invigor 210, uh, cohort one was the first line, cohort two was in platinum refractory. And, and we're trying to decide, you know, how to optimally positioned immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, there were some data from other tumor types uh, with switch maintenance strategy. Uh, myself uh, and Tom Powell's both have interest in the, the maintenance strategy. We both had published before uh, some attempts with uh, target therapies. He did a fantastic trial with lapatinib that was negative uh, uh, under uh, the mentorship of my mentor during fellowship, Dr. Hussein. 
I had the chance to work on a maintenance trial uh, with sunitinib that was also negative. But both me and Tom had a high interest in this setting. So um, back in the day, this trial was designed, and uh, um, the, the main question was, uh, can we utilize Avelumab, a PD-L1 inhibitor, as treats maintenance strategy in patients who already have benefit from chemotherapy, meaning response or stable disease, uh, and uh, randomize these patients after the end of frontline uh, induction plug-and-based chemotherapy to either Avelumab plus best supportive care or best supportive care alone. And, and we, we thought that the best supportive care, you know, it was a reasonable uh, approach because that's side of care, right? That's what we have been doing until mm. today in patients who complete frontline chemotherapy. And, and Tom, you know, has had great experience, as I mentioned, in, 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 in this disease and um, was instrumental to... Uh, uh, you know, uh, direct this design, and we had. I remember our early phone calls, like five or five years ago. Um, you know, when we we're trying to optimize the, the protocol and make it practical, and 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 make sure we can accrue in this study because it's very difficult, you right, know, to accrue in maintenance trials. Uh, you know, for many practical logistical reasons. Uh, however, I think I think we started and and uh, we eventually made some protocol amendments that were necessary for streamlining a few things and the accrual um, eventually picked up and uh, were able to to complete the study so that the first win was to to be able to to design and complete a switch maintenance immunotherapy trial um, that was by itself I think was a, a yes. milestone yes. Uh, uh, overall so I got, that was the background uh, just to give you the all, all the background that, that led to the design of the study and can you just describe for the listeners the, the sort of main outcomes from the study that were presented at ASCO that you think are pertinent? Sure, absolutely. So so the design of the study, as I mentioned, was for patients who had complete response, partial response or stable disease to uh, gemcitabine cisplatin or gemcitabine carboplatin. Uh, these patients, uh, uh, they had four, five or six cycles of chemo and there was a time window between four and 10 weeks. And within that time window, Patients could enroll on the Javelin Bladder 100 trial. Uh, and um, uh, patients um, uh, on the Avelumab arm, uh, they had a significant, uh, I would argue, both statistically speaking and clinically speaking, significant overall survival benefits. Overall survival was the primary endpoint of the study, both in all comers, meaning regardless of PDL1 expression in the tumor and in the subset of patients with PDL1 high tumors. Both populations were PDL1 high and all comers uh, were in the primary endpoint of overall survival. And the study met that primary endpoint. As I mentioned, the hazard ratio was 0.69 in all comers um, with a median overall survival exceeding 21 months with Avelumab and the median overall survival about uh, uh, 14 months or so with best supportive care alone. So it was a median overall survival difference of 7.1 months in all comers uh, with um, um, a hazard ratio, as, as I mentioned, that was below 0.7. And uh, this uh, hazard ratio was actually 0.56 for patients with PDL1 high tumors. So um, uh, even higher degree of benefit there. But even if you look at the PDL1 negative subset, that was a question that came up. Even in this population, the hazard ratio, if I recall, was around 0.85, was in the right direction, uh, favoring Avelumab, did not meet significance itself. But keep in mind that the PDL1 negative subset was not a primary point, was exploratory. Um, so overall, in totality, I think Javelin Bladder 100 represents a paradigm change. Uh, it's so hard to have an overall survival difference and you know, prolonged life in this disease. 
And I think this study was one of the few studies that actually made it happen. And I, I, I anticipate this to change the way we treat urothelial cancer. Patients who have no progression after induction chemotherapy, I think they will uh, be testing to get uh, a velumapidol-1 inhibitor at the switch maintenance strategy. And we can uh, talk more if you want in, for more nuances, but I think overall is is one of the few practice-changing studies in the field. Yeah, and I think uh, your your summary about a paradigm shift is something that you, almost all of us agree with. And uh, uh, Dr. Petsy Pl- Plimak, of course, from Fox Chase, did a really, really nice plenary discussion uh, following uh, Tom Powell's presentation of your paper, uh, Petros. And I just want to play you uh, one of her summary comments uh, about uh, the paradigm shift that uh, she sees uh, coming out of this uh, important study. In the front line, we go back to basics. Platinum-based chemotherapy remains the best initial therapy for these patients. It has the highest overall response rate. There's a tail on the curve with durable treatment-free survival for some, and it sets your patient up for the best chance at overall survival to their subsequent checkpoint inhibitor. Furthermore, it does not require pdl one testing for treatment selection, and it is unlikely that a non-responder to platinum would have benefited from frontline checkpoint inhibition even if PDL one positive based on the hypothesis generating data I just showed. Yeah, so I think uh, th- that was a very fair summary uh, of the data. And Andrew, I suppose that's pushing it back to you. Does it simplify? I mean, with a lot of things happening in this area, which I suppose we'll go and talk about in a few moments um, with IO and combination IO uh, frontline for metastatic cancer. But the simplification, the, the paradigm shift that um, Petros and Betsy both really enunciated of back to basics, you know, chemo up front, uh, gem cyst type con- platinum based chemo up front for metastatic urothelial cancer, plus then uh, maintenance um, uh, IO afterwards. Would you agree that this is a paradigm shift while we await the paper and, and finer nuanced details? Definitely. I, I think today, um, looking at that amazing overall survival benefit that we see in, you know, not just a couple of months, uh, but, you know, several months difference between those two arms, um, the, the patients that we see in clinic, I think we should be treating with this maintenance strategy now. And this is, you know, practice changing for... Uh, many reasons because it'll mean for patients that we see that have a response or stable disease and that's typically about 85% of our patients that we're treating with first-line platinum-based chemotherapy would be eligible for maintenance strategy with Evelumab rather than waiting and I think from a pragmatic perspective and going back to basics as Betsy touched on I think it's, it's it's probably going to change the way we do things but there are some subtleties and I think it's worth discussing those because there are some curious aspects to the data in the context of other data sets out there so for instance uh, there is a another maintenance uh, trial that's already been presented by Matt Galski looking at a switch maintenance with pembrolizumab conducted at US academic centers and Petros uh, what are your thoughts regarding that data presented by Matt Galski showing that whilst the maintenance pembrolizumab led to a PFS benefit, there wasn't an overall survival benefit um, in that particular trial, but there is one with the Evelumab. So um, did Pfizer just get lucky with their study uh, or were there differences in the study design? That's a great question. And I think um, uh, overall uh, in the context of the data we have, uh, all the trials that we have available right now point in the same direction. And the direction is, the strategy is switch maintenance immune checkpoint inhibitor after 
and not concurrent after uh, primary induction chemotherapy. I think the study by, by Matt Galski and colleagues from the Hoosier Cancer Research Network was presented at the ASCO 2019 annual meeting. Very important study, nice study. Uh, there were some differences with the Javelin Bladder 100 trial. One of the main differences was the sample size. Uh, Matt uh, Galski's trial was uh, a smaller size. I think it was 107 patients um, with a crossover design. Uh, so just based on the sample size, it was, I suppose, very difficult to solve survival. However, um, uh, you know, you can argue that, you know, it, it, it's still worth looking at it, and, and they did. Uh, but uh, it, the Montgalski trial showed a significant difference in the primary endpoints. That was a progression-free survival, but did not solve a survival benefit. And, and their discussion would the crossover play a role, the small sample size, other factors. It's hard to know for sure, but I think the take-home point for me is that the strategy is viable. And, and it, I think that study set the stage for the Javelin trial. That's a more definitive, larger phase three trial. Uh, so both trials made their primary endpoints, and that's a take-home point. Because the Javelin is a, is a larger study, is a phase three trial randomized with 700 patients, I think generates level one evidence. So when it goes to the clinic, I think switch maintenance is the way to go for those without progression. And between the two studies, because we're in an academic world and we preach about evidence-based medicine and we talk about evidence-based practice, I, I would argue that uh, I would use the level one evidence based on a randomized phase three trial, which happens to be javelin in that particular case. And yeah. that's how I would make decisions in clinical practice. If you ask me, uh, well, if the study was done with Pembro, would have shown the same result. And it's hard to, of course, answer definitively. It's possible, but but we don't know for sure because it's the way that the way uh, the study was done was with um, that uh, agent, Avelumab. So I would go with with the level one evidence. However, I think the uh, the study by Matt Galski just reinforces the concept of switch maintenance. Uh, uh, even if it did not meet the overall survival benefit in the Hoosier trial. Yeah, it's great points. Uh, I think one of the um, controversial issues or talking points that ca has come up in differentiating the trials is this uh, nature of crossover in these switch maintenance studies. And um, I think, Declan, you've got a quote from uh, Vinay Prasad that uh, touches on this uh, potential criticism of Javelin 100. Only 43% of people who progress on best supportive care get a subsequent PD-1 antibody. 34% get a different drug. Well, a different drug would not be acceptable standard of care, and 30% are going to discontinue with no subsequent therapy. This is not good. This is a poor rate of appropriate post-protocol care, and that speaks volumes. That basically poisoned your entire OS. Um, you're not giving your control arm appropriate standard of care when they progress, and therefore your overall survival is utterly unreliable, and it can't be used to draw conclusions you're not poison the os gee yeah, so that's uh, that's dr vinay prasad on his um plenary uh, podcast he's not uh, afraid to share his strong opinions and he, he often actually of course will make some very valid points about controlled arms and crossover design these are pet hobby horses of his but uh, but I'll, maybe i'll ask you andrew first uh, while petros digests that I, we can't see his face we've just uh, we've lost our video on zoom but um I, i'd imagine i'd love to see his face actually but <laughs> what do you think i mean we always control arm is often one of the most interesting parts of any randomized 
randomized control trial because you get some truth about what's going on. Is it fair criticism to say that um, the cross the, uh, the the control arm uh, did not uh, have an appropriate what he might consider standard of care in the US nowadays by being actively uh, treated uh, on progression with IO? He's saying only 43% did. Did it really poison the OS as he said himself? Is it fair criticism or a little bit harsh? Yeah, I think um, it's a little bit harsh because in the real world, looking after bladder cancer patients uh, who, for instance, have first-line chemotherapy and then begin to progress, a proportion of those are going to progress in difficult-to-manage ways such as uh, with sepsis or pain and require admission to hospital and they're not going to be suitable for treatment with a a second-line strategy. And I think real-world data and, and, and looking at data from other trials in what proportion of patients actually go on to receive second-line therapy shows that it's actually very hard to have a 100% um, crossover to the maintenance arm, and that's been seen in many different cancer fields, lung cancer and others. And I, I think, Petros, you probably would have the same um, sort of perspective on real-world practice that it's difficult to actually treat patients who are progressing rapidly with second-line therapy. I totally agree with you, Andrew. I, th- I think the reality is that everybody wants the best for their patients, right? Everybody wants the patients to go through multiple lines because it means it, it, uh, they live longer and they benefit from its therapy. However, the, the reality is very different, right? The reality shows very different landscape. And I will just remind everybody that both plethora of retrospective and now two studies with prospective data, uh, and there are actually more studies, uh, maintenance studies that were done before, show the same thing again and again, that only a smaller proportion that we hoped for end up getting second-line therapy. And I can start citing literature here for the next five or 10 minutes, which I will not do for the sake of time, uh, a literature that shows that the proportion of patients who make it to second-line therapy is much lower. Just an example, um, uh, Dr. Flanner and colleagues presented some data, uh, I think it was 2017, that showed that only one-third, again, one-third, about 33% of patients, after platinum-based chemotherapy, made to second line. Uh, the, the other data set, which uh, I think is very relevant, is from Matt Galski's trial, right? The, the prospective phase yeah. two trial that was published. Matt Galski was telling me that the, if despite the built-in crossover, right, the proportion of patients who did crossover was low, was maybe half of the patients. And maybe about another 10% max, they got it, you know, if you, if you, if you assume, of treat of protocol that maximum 60%, right? So so this is with a building crossover design. And there are many other uh, literature studies that show that the proportion of patients who make it to the second line is between 25 and 55%. So having these numbers in mind, the 62% that uh, made it into second line in Javelin is not bad at all. And in my opinion, it reflects real-world evidence, and actually, if anything, this number compares favorably to to, uh, the previous data in the literature. Yeah. Uh, So I think the reality is that many people don't make it second line. The other point is, if you look at subsequent therapies, uh, a small proportion got um, uh, uh, FGF receptor inhibitors. It was a small proportion, so you can add that up, right, you know, to IO. Mm. 44% 
got IO subsequent and maybe it was three or four percent got um, uh, FCF cell inhibitor. And in the second line, you don't have any, uh, you know, uh, clear comparison between um, um, FCF cell inhibition versus IO. So you can argue that about half of your patients got um, uh, kind of, you know, appropriate therapy and some others got chemotherapy, which is it's active in some patients. So in totality, uh, I think, yes, we would like the patients to get uh, subsequent uh, standard therapy. I agree with that point. Everybody wants that. But even if you argue that the number is not as high as you wanted it, I do not think it removes, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the signal and, and the evidence from javelin trials. So uh, I think the data uh, message is still valid, as uh, Dr. Klimak pointed out, and as Dr. Pauls uh, uh, pointed out in his talk. I yeah. think that was a very diplomatic and excellent uh, defense, wasn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. 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 No, but I think it just represents sort of real world yes. practicalities which we're facing in clinic. And I think for me, one of the very interesting things about it being a clinician in bladder cancer recently is how much uh, um, data there is to talk about, um, you know, and put into context of these current uh, trials that are coming out. And I almost feel like a... Um, kid at Christmas time unwrapping <laughs> presents and getting excited about the next present. Um, so I'm going to talk about the, the next present that I was hoping to unwrap Petros um, at Christmas time, like a kid eagerly awaiting something special. And that was the outcome from one of our uh, first line studies. Um, so we've seen data presented on Invigor 130, but the field as a whole has been waiting for data from the um, upfront chemo plus pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy trial, the Keynote 361 um, data. And I was hoping to unwrap that present sometime shortly <laughs> and get another excitement that the field had changed. And yet yes. I read a press release yesterday, which was disappointing. And actually, before you go on to it, um, and it does it does move quickly, you think you've got momentum in one direction and then boom, uh, or you see signals. But uh, in fact, Tom Poles, your, your first author uh, of your paper, Petros, that you're senior author on for Javelin, uh, in his own podcast, the Euromigos podcast, um, a few days after he presented it, um, kind of alluded to this, trying to look ahead uh, to the, the, the Christmas present uh, that Andrew was looking forward to. And here's what uh, he said on reflection. I think that the, the bladder cancer space keeps giving us unpredictable results. The next big step is if either um, 361 or 130, the chemotherapy plus immune therapy studies come in with survival advantages, mm -hmm. then that would make a, an area of uncertainty about which approach should be pursued. And I think that will be somewhat dependent on the data. Um, there's also an ipilimumab and nivolumab study around the corner which looks interesting. So the frontline immune therapy story is not yet complete and the first round is not over. Well, that, that's what he said uh, just a few days ago. But as you say, yesterday we had a, a press release from Merck uh, about Keynote 361. Do you want to just in our last few minutes, let's focus on that, where we're going in that particular space. Um, Andrew, could you please remind us what Keynote 361 was and what the press release from Merck uh, said yesterday? So this was a study in the first line of newly diagnosed metastatic patients with urothelial cancer, comparing them to a strategy of either chemotherapy, representing a standard of care, uh, or chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab, and with a third arm, which was going to be pembrolizumab monotherapy. And the press release, which was how we discover new data these days, sadly, uh, said that it had failed to meet its uh, primary endpoint, which was... I think a combined overall survival PFS endpoint comparing chemo plus pembrolizumab 
to chemotherapy and that there was uh, no significant difference between those arms. So Petros, how do you interpret the, the data of sort of 361 and that study in, in Vigath 130 and uh, the implications for Javelin, I suppose? That's a, a great question, and you know, as you said, we uh, we we all want the trials to be positive because that translates to longer life. But as you said, we had a, a, a series of press releases recently that actually did not show uh, overall survival benefit. We we had the press release from the Danube trial in the frontline setting a couple of months ago that uh, showed that durvalumab tremelimumab versus chemotherapy did not meet the primary endpoint of OS. Uh, and even the durvalumab and pitaloma high tumors uh, versus chemo did not meet OS. And as of yesterday, to your point, Keynote 361, that we were all waiting, um, you know, eagerly uh, 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 sent out the press release that um, uh, pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy combination did not meet statistical significance in the primary endpoints compared to um, uh, chemotherapy. Um, and, and that's, you know, to many people, this was a surprise um, because we have data from lung cancer that show that the combination, you know, prolongs, uh, you know, uh, survival. So it was, it was a, a, you know, something that, you know, it was probably not what people expect. I, I would say that if you put the data together in terms of the Invigor 130, what we saw from Dr. Grande's presentation at ESMO 2019 and the press release from Keynote 361, it seems to me that the concurrent combination of chemo plus IO, Atizo or Pembro, um, did not appear to uh, have a, any additive uh, effects. And I say that because neither of those two trials as of now uh, ha has met uh, overall survival endpoint. And secondly, if you look at the, even at the response rates uh, with the chemo atizo versus chemo placebo in the Invigor 130, uh, the response rate was very close to each other, 47% versus 44%. I would expect more uh, with a combo, which makes me think that what Dr. Plimak mentioned in the plenary session discussion about potential overlap in the population of patients who respond to chemo and IO are these potentially the same patients who respond to, to, to both of those modalities? And it's a hypothesis generating question. I don't think we have the definitive answer, but it makes you think that maybe, um, you know, this may be significant overlap there and you don't get much addition by adding one to the other. Uh, so uh, based on the data we have so far, and especially in the context of the press release of Keynote 361 yesterday, I think, I think the paradigm here it's chemotherapy up front, followed by switch maintenance for patients, of course, who can tolerate chemotherapy in the first place. And I think the majority of patients are able to tolerate chemotherapy in the, in the frontline setting. A few of them, uh, maybe 10% in my practice or so, Andrew can comment on it, cannot get any chemo. And, and this 10% or so uh, may get checkpoint inhibitor in the frontline. Um, and in the U.S., FDA allows pembrolatizo regardless of pitalin expression for those who are unfit for any platinum. But I think this population, platinum unfit, cis and carbon fit, is a very small proportion in my practice. And Andrew, you can comment on that. Yeah, I think the, um, the future direction is uh, going to be focused on now looking at in the first line um, whether or not there is a population that should have checkpoint inhibition alone and whether we can select that group out um, and the data from Matt Galski looking at Invigor 130 and biomarkers was fascinating in that regard, 
and touches on some of the reasons why there may not be uh, positive overall survival data. In one of his slides, he showed that if you took patients who had a high tumor mutation burden and PDL1 high, so this is these are patients who you'd predict would respond to immune therapy. Uh, the patients that got a tezolizumab had, uh, as monotherapy, had a, a very good response and their their OS PFS curve was you know flat. They they had great responses, but in fact there was no difference in that group um, between the chemotherapy arm and the chemotherapy plus a tezolizumab arm. So you know the the immune responders actually did not get a benefit if they had concurrent chemotherapy. So I wonder if that's a reason um, why we're seeing the failure of the combination treatments here. We're poisoning the immune response if we give concurrent chemo in those responders. And so the question would be, can we pick those patients out and for better quality of life just give them single-agent immune therapy? What are your thoughts, Petros, on that approach? It's a great question. I saw the data uh, from Matt and, and, and Ricky and others, you know, from Invigor 130. I agree that it's very interesting data, uh, especially with atezo monotherapy in PDL1 high and high TMB. Uh, and and I, I congratulate them for doing this biomarker work, which is very important for the field. I, I think it, it's always very hard to translate results like this in clinical practice. And the question is, are we ready tomorrow to go in the clinic and, and make a clinical decision based on that result? Would I select IO versus chemotherapy followed by IO? Uh, uh, in in uh, you know based on this data and it is hard because the biomarkers uh, it, it's kind of a holy grail right and they are different cutoffs they are different assays they are different antibodies for PDL1 different scoring algorithms and for TMB so many different methods of um, uh, measurement of TMB cutoff so I think it's difficult to translate them in practice impact uh, however. I would definitely like to see more data with biomarkers, and we're going to look at biomarkers in the Javelin Bladder 100 trial. It's very important. And do I see a future with IO alone? Uh, I think it, it might happen, uh, and it happens already in, in the platinum refractory patients. For those who are PDL1 high uh, and maybe TMB high, I think the jury is still out there. And, and, and the question here is um, uh, you have the data from Invigor 130, and it's under my study. So you can answer the predictive question, not only prognostic. The question is, does it raise to the bar to make a clinical decision? I think the data is compelling, but I would like to see some validation uh, in terms of clinical utility of the of the biomarker. And, and I think you know it, it would be nice to see similar data um, that you quoted from the Kinot 361 trial and also the Checkmate 901 trial uh, with uh, with Nivo GEMCs versus GEMCs and from the Nile trial down the road just to see if this can be validated in other studies. But uh, overall, very interesting data. Yeah, no, no, great points. Um, it's a fascinating area and uh, there's a lot more data to come, Renu, uh, that'll yeah. keep us talking and uh, more podcasts in the future digesting all of this uh, practice-changing yeah. results. Absolutely. Bladder cancer. Who would have yeah, told them? Thought? Yeah, well, the whole podcast getting built around bladder cancer this yeah. few weeks. There you go. We really could talk f about it forever. Um, but Petros, when can we expect the paper just before we finish up? Uh, you know, we, we have to keep that a surprise, right? <laughs> <laughs> the present. Uh, well, I, I think the paper will, will come soon. Um, uh, I think it's uh, overall, as we all know, the COVID-19 overall has, you know, dominated the 
literature and and our minds and, yeah. and it's a, it's a uh, you know it's an important i think consideration here that a lot of attention is in covid-19 uh, but i'm hopeful that we'll have the the data out uh, as soon as possible for the community to review and you know going back to the critique we discussed before i think critique is is is, is good to have right critique because it generates a dialogue and uh, the dialogue is uh, as in ancient greece generates progress so i'm all uh, i'm all up for it and uh, looking forward to more dialogue in the near future guys hopefully you can invite me back Fantastic. Uh, Petros, congratulations to you and your team on, on this really practice-changing work. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today, taking uh, time out of your busy schedule to have a chat with us. And thank you so much for having me and both you. <laughs> Fantastic. And a special thank you to you, Andrew, uh, for joining us in studio today. And we, and we look forward to welcoming you, back, welcoming you back in the near future. That was a pleasure. I'm happy to ride my bike back in and uh, appear again. <laughs> We'll have to give you a special parking spot for your bike. <laughs> um, that's it from Declan and I uh, and GU Cast today. Uh, join us in the very near future for our next episode and uh, take care.